Our Father in heaven, once again, when we come to difficult passages like this, we know there are no easy answers in one sense. They are passages that stretch us, that challenge us. And so we pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might hear what it is you're saying and what you're like. You would help us to work hard and to think hard. But we come with an expectancy this Father's Day because we know that you are our Father in heaven who loves to give good gifts to his children. And so please feed us and equip us and nourish us for this week and for our life ahead. In your Son's name. Amen. Um, I guess off the back of last week, the big question that ought to be in our minds as we reach chapter 8 of Joshua is, well, what now? So if you were here last week, chapter 7, and as Matt was teaching the children, to put it mildly, it was a bit of a train wreck. There was an absolute mess. It had been plain sailing so far through the book, pretty much, everything going well, and yet chapter 7, and it's not according to plan. Do you remember... As Matt was teaching the kids, Akan, as he stole these banned items, specifically banned by the Lord, he, he saw them, he took them, he hid them. Very Genesis 3 type language. And though because of that, there's this failed attempt then to, to defeat the city of Ai. God's blessing in one sense had been removed from them due to the actions of this guy. And then, the end of chapter 7, the community dealing with meeting out the anger of God upon him so that he and his family were stoned. So the question is, you reach chapter 8 and we're thinking, what now? One of the tensions we've seen in Joshua week by week is this idea both of the faithfulness of God who makes promises, who is covenant-keeping. You can trust him. He will get you to the place of rest. And yet that trust is not passive, it is active, it's clinging to him, it's, it's doing as he says, it's obedience and faith in light of who he is and the promises that he makes. They crossed the Jordan because they obeyed him, they took Jericho because they obeyed him. But what happens when they don't? Like last week. Was that a, a temporary blip or was something more permanent? How does the story go on from here? And I take it in one sense, that's not a hypothetical question that we just simply ask of Joshua. Because what happens when, when we get it wrong? When we don't listen, when we harbour sin, when we take these sacred things of our culture and bury them underneath our tent and turn a blind eye, the, the other gods whom we serve... And yet we kind of ignore it and justify them and are happy. Is it game over for us when we slip into those patterns again and again and again? We're, of course, we're not seeking to take the promised land as they were. But we are seeking to trust him and to follow him into that final place of rest. Clinging on to Jesus, the greater Joshua, who has secured victory for us. And yet, Yet we need to trust him. He has been the faithful one. He has won in eternity with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But what happens when we, when we don't get it right, when we do forget? What happens when we are far too much like Achan than we would like to admit? Is it game over? Well, clearly the book doesn't end at chapter 7, so clearly not. Have a look down with me at chapter 8. And I just want to try and initially zoom in to show you how the passage works. 
to give you the kind of lie of the land, if you like, big picture, and then we will zoom in into the two halves that I think are there. The, the passage seems to divide, as our NIV has for us, um, at, the, at the end of verse 29 and then verse 30. And so in 1 to 29, what we have in fairly tight detail is the conquest of I. You get the military strategy, you get it being worked out. And then from 30 to 35, you get a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. So you get conquest and you get covenant. And if you're the kind of person who twitches without alliteration, today you shall be happy. 1 to 29, firstly then conquest. And it's very different from, I think, what we've seen before in Joshua and particularly what we saw in chapter 7 as we get to grips with those verses. Why is it different? Firstly, because there is basically no ark. Do you notice that? It does appear in the chapter in verse 33, but in this section, 1 to 29, there is nothing. And compare that with chapter 3 to 4, crossing the Jordan, it was all about the ark compare it with Jericho it was all about the ark here is something slightly different in chapter 8 I think in one sense here are the people beginning to learn to stand on their own two feet it's much more about Joshua and his military strategy his ability as a leader in one sense it's not quite as black and white as that because verse 1 the Lord is still very clearly in charge you see end of verse 1 for I have delivered I into your hands You get in verse 18 as well. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Hold out towards I the javelin that's in your hand, for into your hand I will deliver this city. Seems verse 18, almost a kind of prophetic action that Joshua is undertaking. But it's still the Lord who will deliver the city into the hands of his people. But it is true that chapter 8 seems to be more about Joshua than about the ark as previously. So there's one difference. The second difference is that, at least in terms of comparing it to chapter 7, we get some planning this time. You maybe get a sense of deja vu as we reach the start of 8. We're looking again at the city of Ai. It's the same challenge as last week, but maybe a level of doubt or anxiety or concern didn't go so well last time. We had our fingers burnt last time. How's it going to go this time? But the way they go about it this week is completely different from how they went about it last week. So let me just flick back, if you like, a page to um, 7 verse 2 to 3. Do you remember the sort of speed with which they went about things? It all felt very unplanned. So verse 2, 7 verse 2, page 221. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai, very similar to Jericho. When they returned to Joshua, they said, ah, not all the army will have to go up against I, and again and again. Do you remember? A few spies, quite complacent, a little bit arrogant it felt, not much planning. And yet this time, 8 verse 1 to 4, and, Joshua, and the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack I, for I've delivered it into your hands, the king of I, his people, his city, his land. You shall do to I and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourselves. They had an ambush behind the city. So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack I. He chose 30,000 of his best fighting men and sent them out at night. With these orders, listen carefully, you're to set an ambush behind the city. Don't go far from it. All of you be on your alert. So the first time, they actually hear from the Lord. 
But then he gives them broad military tactics this time as to what they're to do. And then the details get filled in as the passage goes on. But compared to last time, it feels very different. Then it was quite rushed, not hugely thought through. This time it's much more methodical. And and what is the plan to take this city? Well, in one sense, it's a very clever one. You see, last time they flew from I out of terror. This time they're going to fly from I again, but out of trickery. The basic answer is let's split, their tr- split our troops, put a small group in front of the city, lure out the soldiers towards the wilderness, just like last week. They will chase after you just like last week. They'll leave the city unguarded and we'll nip round the back. We tempt them out the front door and then we leave, they leave the back door open and unguarded. They take the bait, they fall for the trap. And so verse 10, you get it, early the next morning, Joshua mustered his army and he and the leaders of Israel marched before them to Ai. The entire force that was with him marched up and approached the city and arrived in front of it. They set up camp north of Ai with the valley between them and the city. Joshua had taken about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So the soldiers took up their positions with the, the main camp to the north of the city and the ambush to the west of it. And that night, Joshua went into the valley. When the king of Ai saw this, he and all the men of the city hurried out early in the morning to meet Israel in battle at a certain place overlooking the Araba. But he did not know that an ambush had been set against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel let themselves be driven back before them and they fled towards the wilderness. And all the men of Ai were called to pursue them and they pursued Joshua. They were lured away from the city. Not a man remained in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and went in pursuit of Israel. It works. Hook, line, sinker. Last week, Israel was ambushed by them. This week, tables are turned. They are going to ambush them. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you will remember we took quite a long time thinking about this kind of idea, which is something that people in our place, in our town, people like us, need to think about. How can this be okay? This kind of war and annihilation, and it feels pretty barbaric. My basic answer of that is your question is, it's not easy. Have a listen in to the sermon from a couple of weeks ago, Joshua 6, 4th of June. It's on the website. There's 20 minutes or so there exploring some of what's going on here. Thinking, why is such an issue for people like us? Thinking to do with bigger picture stuff that that the Lord, the Bible never ducks issues of God's justice. The wages of sin is always death. Justice and judgment one day will be seen by all and we hide from that and we don't like that at times. But then zooming in on perhaps more specific kind of Joshua ideas to do with language. How can he say he destroys, destroys them all and then later chapters they're not all destroyed? Is there a kind of military rhetoric going on we spoke about? Something to do with archaeology, seeing Jericho at least seems to be a relatively small military centre. Some of the awful nitty-gritty of what Canaan was actually like, they weren't just neutral, twiddling their thumbs, and then suddenly Israel comes in and gets rid of them. No, they were horrible. They are receiving the justice that they deserve from a holy God. So I'd encourage you to have a listen in to chapter 6 to deal with some of the objections and thoughts perhaps that you have stuff that we struggle with this feels a long way from us because verse 28 should make us 
should make us ask similar questions. How and why does the king get impaled in that way? Maybe you thought that as it was read to us. How is it okay that Joshua burns the city and it's a permanent heap of ruins and desolate place to this day? What's that all about? It seems that I was, was a royal or cultural centre. And so acting in that way is a way, if you like, of marking this as God's territory. He is the true king. And this king, this little king of I, is killed and is removed. And it's a way of saying there is a new king in town. The old king is dead. The new king has come. And don't you forget it. And so there's a line drawn, both at the end of the city of Ai, but also an underlining again of success for the people, a thing of the past. Chapter 7 is done away with. Chapter 8 shows the plan, the project is back on track again. It's worth just saying that, that there's a pretty good argument, actually, that chapter 8 should go with chapter 7. Maybe we should have put it in last week as well. It's all part of the same story in one sense, which means the story really is a story of hope. Chapter 7 last week, we saw unconfessed sin really matters. There's no such thing as private sin. In one sense, there's no such thing as individual sin because our lives are joined together and what one person does affects the whole. We can't forget that particularly in perhaps churches like ours where often we have a very high view of the sovereignty of God and we begin to think, well, what we do doesn't actually matter that much, really, because God's in charge, so it's all okay, actually. But no, no, chapter 7 won't let us think that. Disobedience really matters. In one sense, disobedience means God's blessing is paused, at least, removed in parts. What? Achan did really matters. But if you move from chapter 7 to chapter 8, then we begin to, begin to get a story of hope. Confessed sin can be moved on from. We've said this before at Magdalen Road, but we're never too far gone. So easily we can think that, that is one sin too many, that is one sin too big. It has to be that God has had enough of me and he's got nothing really for me now because I just keep mucking up. And I hate it, but I can't stop myself. And yet chapter 8 is a story of hope. Because here we see God's faithfulness being clung onto again. God's promises being trusted and obeyed again. And that's how the passage continues until you reach chapter, uh, sorry, verse 30 where you get this gear change and something of a change in tempo. So you've seen the sort of nitty gritty of the conquest. You've seen chapter 7 put behind them. Chapter 8 is here. Unconfessed sin is dealt with. Then they are victorious. And then we reach um, verse 30 and we see the covenant being renewed again. Let me read, uh, please have a look down with me, from verse 30 to 35. 
Verse 30, then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a, a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it's written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the foreigners who lived among them. Do you feel something of the change in pace, don't you? The change in focus of what's going on. I want to ask two questions, really, um, of these verses, verse 33 to 35. And the first question is a kind of why here question. That is, this covenant renewal moment is a little like chapter 5 if you remember a sort of pressing pause on the project looking again to God but why is this here in this place at the end of chapter 8 why this place at this time I think there are two answers at least at least here are two answers one is that it's on a mountain that is in in geographical terms we are pretty central in terms of the land, we're overlooking the surroundings. There's a sense in which from here you can sort of survey the whole plot. You can survey the area that the Lord had promised to Abraham hundreds of years before, and finally he's provided. So they're up high, they can see all that the Lord has given them. And yet mountains, of course, in Bible language, are very often places of meeting with the Lord, encountering him. Think Moses on Sinai, think Elijah in the same place, think Jesus even, on the Mount of Transfiguration. What, a better, what better place to recommit and to, to remember the faithfulness of God than upon a mountain? And then strikingly, it's not simply a mountain. It is actually the mountain that Moses alluded to in Deuteronomy. We get it a couple of times in this bit. We get it in verse uh, 31. Um, and then you get it in verse 34 as well, alluded to there. So it's not just the fact that it's a mountain, you can see all the Lord's promises, it's the fact that Moses said, do this. And Moses mentions it um, a couple of times in Deuteronomy, and we know when preachers repeat themselves, maybe we ought to listen. Moses did it twice, so maybe we're meant to listen. You get it particularly in chapter 11, verse 26, a sort of summary skeleton form, I'll read that in a moment. But then it's fleshed out later on in chapters 27 and 28. So in Deuteronomy, you get it chapter 11 in micro form, and then it's filled out in 27 and 28. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 11 and verse 26, and you'll see something of what's being alluded to and why they are doing this on this mountain or these mountains here. So Deuteronomy 11 verse 26, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. 
The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods, which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. And then if you flick ahead to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, you see that kind of filled out. So chapter 11, you get the skeleton. 27 and 28 is the flesh. And here you find the blessings and curses for the people of God as they live in the land. What's he saying? He's saying, live in relationship with the kind, loving, bountiful, generous God who made you, and you will enjoy life as it was meant to be lived. His rule is not a harsh rule. It's the rule of freedom and joy and salvation and goodness. And if you live with him as Lord, you will enjoy those blessings. But, but if you walk out on the God of life, you will taste death. It won't be blessing, it will be curse. If you put your hand into the fire, it will burn you. Don't do that. Don't chase after other gods. You'll find that they're not gods at all. That They won't give you what, you, what they promised you. They sound persuasive, but they never deliver. And you will face the anger and curse of the God whom you were made for until you turn back to him. The trouble is, we think that sounds a bit unfair. Is God mean? He's some kind of egotistical monster. What's going on? Imagine with me, imagine you're a plant. Imagine you're a plant and you're made for the soil. And it's in the soil you have life and water, and nutrients, and all the good stuff you need to flourish and to grow. You were made for the soil. That is where you belong. And yet you, being a clever little plant, think, well, actually, I'm not such a fan of the soil. I think I'm going to go somewhere else and try something else out for a bit. I'm going to go and sit on that piece of concrete over there. That looks like fun, a nice place to be. And yet you go off to the place of concrete, you think, which is the place of life. Having a party here, it's great. But you've got no nutrients or water or the things that you need to grow and to flourish. Plants are made for the soil. Did you say, so we are made for God? That's us. We're made for the relationship with God. We think we'd do better on our own. But he says, no, 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 come Come and live with me. Come and enjoy the blessings that I have for you. Don't, don't try and go it alone. It never works. You were made for me. Well, so the people of God here in the land. And commentators say that Deuteronomy, in one sense, is the heart of the law. And so some say that this chapters 27 and 28 is the heart of the law. Of Deuteronomy, and so in one sense, the blessings and curses are the heart of the heart of the law. And the people are in the land, and it's reiterated afresh, they are recommitting themselves to Him. So, first question then, why here? Well, one, because of the fact that it's mountains, one, because of what Moses said. But what is actually going on here? Clearly there's something covenantal going on. They are realigning themselves with the law. 
They've got half the people on Mount Gerizim proclaiming the blessings over themselves. They've got half the people on Mount Ebal proclaiming the curses over themselves. Both and, not either or. There's a tablet of stone thing going on. That's thinking Exodus 20, aren't we? We're thinking Ten Commandments. And everyone is there. You get native-born and foreigners. You get priests and leadership and just normal people like us. You get men and women and children all the people of God tying themselves together to what God has said, putting themselves under his kingship, under his words. I mean, verse 35, notice the entirety and the scope of what's going on there. And so in one sense they're saying, do you know, this word of God, this law, it's not just something hypothetical, this is something personal for us as a people. This is not an out there truth, this is an in here truth for us. In the land, they promise, we will live like this. We will trust God. It's a very striking section, a very solemn section. and Maybe we're slightly scratching our heads thinking, well, with the benefit of hindsight, living this side of the cross, and with the benefit of knowing your track record, Israelites, really? Is that a wise thing to do? Is that a noble thing? Definitely, but a bit naive, perhaps. They are calling on themselves blessings and curses as they obey the law of God. There's something else going on as well. Did you notice what they build, what they construct, what they put together as they do this? Go on, someone tell me, what are they doing? What are they building? Go on, I can hear whispers. It's going to get awkward. Someone shout. Thank you, they are building an altar. Again, that's in part, I take it, because when covenants are ratified or made or remembered, then you do sacrifices. That's how the Bible works. But actually, isn't that interesting that there's this implicit assumption that you will need to make sacrifices for when you get stuff wrong? That's striking. We need an altar because this law that we are holding ourselves to, we're going to get it wrong. We'll need a priest because our hearts wander off after other things. We'll need sacrifices because we forget him so quickly. And so here is God giving an outline for his people, not simply to know the law, to have a relationship with him, but also how they're going to be reconciled to him when it goes wrong. We can't deal with our own sin. There's, there's no space for, for creativity on this one. This isn't something we can sort out by ourselves. And in a world that likes to say, well, to me, God is like this, and I like to know him like this, passages like this just don't work with that idea. This is a passage that sounds pretty offensive, actually. It's a passage that says, here is how God wants you to live and here is how you deal with it when you get it wrong. This is God's work alone. So we're saying ours is a creative God, a God of diversity and difference and free thinking and freedom. And, but not when it comes to how we worship him or to how we get right with him or to how we live for him. He is very black or white on these things. He's not someone who can be trifled with. 
So do you see, it's not simply that these altars are kind of covenantal things. But even as the law is given, blood is shed. It's not simply a ratification of this law that they are tying themselves to, but it's, it's a solution for what will happen when they get it wrong. Not simply ratification, but there's reconciliation as well for the future. And isn't that great news? Because maybe you look back to this last week and you think of those times where you've mucked up or got it wrong, where you've let him down, where we let ourselves down, where we let other people down, the things that we do that we oughtn't have, the things that we don't do that we should have. We slip into the same patterns again and again and again. And, and yet we have altars where sacrifices are made because we get stuff wrong. It means God knows us. It means he's ready. It doesn't mean he doesn't want us to walk faithfully and obediently. It doesn't mean that the law is unimportant. But it does mean that he is a God who forgives. Just let your mind wander on from this point. Think of the extraordinary production and routine of sacrifices in the years to come think of the bloodshed that's needed to deal with daily unfaithfulness of the people of god think of the the treadmill of religion day after day week after week month after month year after year think of the extraordinary numbers of animals needed see the seriousness of sin see the holiness of god's Which is why somewhere like Hebrews 10 for us is such an important place for us to go, an important chapter for us to get to grips with. It will be familiar for many of us, but let me just read from Hebrews 10 and verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Do you see what he says? It's such an important chapter. We, we need, do you know what we need? We need a sacrifice once and for all who deals with all sin for all time. We need one whose blood is so powerful and so sufficient that, that sin is dealt with forever. And indeed one who's Death doesn't just deal with the punishment that our sins deserve, but actually one whose death deals with our hearts, whereby we keep veering off towards sin and away from God. We need one whose death softens hearts, brings them to life, whose word is written upon hearts rather than upon tablets of stone. Like in Joshua 8, we need... We need Christ. We need the author of a new covenant. 
whose sacrifice is sufficient and who by his spirit softens our hearts and makes his home among his people. We need Jesus. And his death in our place, his resurrection for us, is truly beautiful. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the true and greater Joshua who has secured a place of rest for his people. Thank you that you have defeated your enemies on the cross. Thank you that you have defeated sin and Satan and suffering and death. Help us please to be a people who cling to you as we journey to that place of rest, to the new heavens and the new earth. Help us to trust and obey you. And thank you too for what just this glimpse of covenant renewal means for us. Thank you that you, you give your people the law again. That they might remember how to live. That they might commit themselves to you and to obey you and to trust you. And yet at the heart of that law giving is an altar of uncut stones. where sacrifices take place. Thank you that the law now is not written upon tablets of stone, but by the new covenant is written upon our hearts. Lord Jesus, help us please to keep eyes fixed on you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.